Hey everyone, I'm David Chalian, the CNN political director. This is The Daily DC. We are recording this episode in a hotel room in Las Vegas. Our producer, Lou, has constructed a bit of a podcasting fort made of mattresses, a couch, comforter, bed sheets draped over our heads. So uh, we're trying to get rid of any echo you might hear. Uh, hopefully it's successful. Trust me. We look absurd right now recording this podcast, but that's okay. We're going to do with this makeshift studio. We're in Las Vegas in advance of the Nevada Democratic Caucuses this Saturday. Tonight and Thursday night, CNN is hosting town halls with the top five Democratic contenders out of Iowa and New Hampshire. Tonight, that's Sanders, Buttigieg, and Klobuchar. On Thursday night, we've got Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren. And between those two, there's a big debate here in Las Vegas, where Michael Bloomberg, the late entrant and big factor in this 2020 race, will be on the debate stage for the very first time. Today on the podcast, we're pleased to have one of my all-star colleagues in the political beat. That's CNN political reporter and proud Nevada native, Dan Merica. Dan, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. In this in this fort. In this fort. It's insane. This mattress is literally like falling in on me. Um, Dan, uh, Michael Bloomberg made the qualification threshold today with a new national poll out from NPR, PBS, Marist. Shows him in second place nationally in this race right now. Shows Bernie Sanders in a dominant first place at 31 percent and then followed by Bloomberg at 19 percent. But that 19 percent is well over the 10 percent he needed for a fourth qualifying poll. And he is going to appear on this debate stage uh, tomorrow night with his competitors, who this will be their ninth debate of the season. Uh, This will be, as his campaign likes to point out, his first since 2009 in a little bit of expectation setting. What should we expect from Michael Bloomberg tomorrow when he takes the debate stage? I think it's safe to say that most of the focus will be on him. He's the newcomer. He's the addition to the race. And he provides all the other candidates a possible contrast point. You know, if you're Bernie Sanders, you want to hit Michael Bloomberg. He is the manifestation of the issues that you talk about on the campaign trail. He is the billionaire that you talk about on the campaign trail. Uh, for, for others, you know, it, it it could be an issue. He provides a lot of the same policy prescriptions in many ways that uh, Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar, even a Joe Biden to some extent, do. So that could kill some of the momentum they've been feeling, especially the Buttigieg and Klobuchar after strong finishes in Iowa and New Hampshire. Well, and even if not kill their momentum, though, their quest has been, each yeah. of them now, to consolidate that moderate uh, center left wing of the party behind them. And now they're getting actually another member there that's going to split vote from it. It's the opposite of consolidation. And it's a critical moment for Bloomberg as well, because his whole argument is, I can beat Trump. I have the money. I have the background. I have the, 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 I have the profile to beat Trump. But a big concern when you go to these Democratic campaign events is, and people ask candidates this, how are you going to handle Donald Trump on the debate stage? You know, they bring up the fact that he loomed over Hillary Clinton in the 2016 general election debates. Pete Buttigieg is asked about this regularly. And so if Mike Bloomberg comes in and has a poor debate performance, how much does that hurt his argument that I can take on Trump when so many Democratic voters are focused on those three general election debates? But he has something other than just his debate performance to be a proof point in I can take on Trump and that's his wallet. And 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 this is my th- this to me is the question about Mike Bloomberg. And I'd love to hear in your conversations with other campaigns and, and to get their thinking. But 
if I wrote down for you, Dan, when we started this campaign, covering this campaign on paper, I said, I'm going to introduce a centrist candidate who uh, was a Republican not that long ago, who is totally of the elite class and not of the grassroots in any way, who has uh, a record on issues like stop and frisk, where he supported a policy uh, like that for quite a long time, both as mayor and beyond, uh, where uh, he has made comments about uh, the practice of redlining and and getting rid of redlining uh, and how that contributed to the financial collapse. Uh, his known history of uh, sexist and misogynist comments and uh, culture at his company. So if I put that all on paper, I'm guessing you would have said to me, that person has no chance in this modern-day Democratic Party. He would have been a low draft, draft pick in my, in my 2020 draft, that's So the sure. question becomes, look at what he's done with his yeah. money, more than $400 million now. Is the money simply enough to override all of those other things I just listed because it is the answer to the question Democratic voters are asking, which is, how do I know who can defeat Trump? I think the reason that I would have been wrong back then by not drafting him uh, at the top is is the fact that a lot of people, I think reporters and other folks, misunderstood how much Democratic voters are purely motivated by a desire to beat Donald Trump. They care about policy. You know, we saw early in the campaign, many people, especially the activist class, were motivated by Elizabeth Warren's policy proposals, other policy proposals. But the key is, to these Democratic voters, is can you beat the president? Because to them, it's an existential crisis in this country. You talk to voters across the political spectrum at events, they'll say that defeating Trump is by far the most important thing to them. And if Michael Bloomberg can prove that he can do that, despite all that, the record that you lay out, and do that with you know his $60 billion estimated net worth and spending hundreds of millions of dollars on TV already, if he can do that, I think there are a lot of Democratic voters that are willing to overlook some of the things they don't like about him because they don't like the president more. And remember, he's promised to spend that money yeah. whether or not he's the nominee. And I think that is yet another successful selling point to Democrats about how committed he is to the Trump defeat mission, as you're saying, which is critical mission number one. My other question for you is size up Bloomberg Sanders for me tomorrow night on the debate stage, because you, you mentioned Sanders has been railing against him as sort of the billionaire class and that that fits in his message. Yeah. I get that. But he also has gone after the stop and frisk issue, which he called a racist policy. And just yesterday, we saw for the first time Bloomberg folks going actively after Bernie Sanders. What is the what is the argument against Sanders from Bloomberg you expect to be on the debate stage? Bloomberg is going to argue that Bernie Sanders is too divisive for this Democratic moment. And that's an argument that others have tried to make. You've seen Pete Buttigieg has tried to make that argument about, about uh, uh, Bernie Sanders. And you saw in that digital ad that, that the Bloomberg campaign released where they listed a number of the comments that Bernie Sanders supporters have made online about other candidates, about the supporters of other candidates, and question really is he committed to running a race that is not divisive, that is not, uh, you know, marred by you know just tough comments from people online and on, on Twitter. Um, the, the argument that I think Bloomberg is going to make is that I am above that. I rise above that. I'm above that divisiveness on Twitter. I, I, you know, he sold himself in his ads as this kind of unifying uh, figure. He has been a Republican. He's been independent. He's been a Democrat, a joke that he often makes. And I think you might hear a little bit of that is that, you know, look, I've I've vacillated between parties. I know what the Republican Party is like. I know what the Democratic Party is like. I think you'll hear that. But for Sanders, I, I have a hard time looking at this debate and not thinking that this is the perfect moment for Bernie Sanders. He has railed for his entire career 
about the billionaire class. And now he will be standing on the same stage fighting for the presidency with a guy who's worth $60 billion and made that money in the financial industry. It is the perfect moment for Sanders. And the question is, how aggressive will he be to you know, knock that out of the park if he can? And how aggressive will Michael Bloomberg be? And how prepared will he be to fight back against that? As you note, his campaign is lowering expectations about his ability to debate. He hasn't debated, they say, since 2009. Um, that's a long time. And a lot of these candidates you've seen have gotten better over the last Definitely. months on the debate stage. Does Michael Bloomberg step onto that debate stage and is he rusty? He doesn't really take a lot of questions at events. He's, he, I don't see him as the most nimble political communicator out there. Um, this could be a really you know, seminal moment for Bernie Sanders. So if I, I just want to pose a simple question to you. My favorite kind. Who is the Democratic frontrunner for the nomination right now? Uh, Bernie Sanders. He is. I would, I would say yes, yeah. And why is that? Because I think he has the energy that a lot of candidates don't have in terms of his support that a lot of candidates don't have. He has the argument going forward that a lot of candidates don't have. And we don't know yet. Bloomberg has not proven anything in terms electorally yet. So I don't think you can call Michael Bloomberg any sort of front runner until Super Tuesday. And we see how whether the investment that he's made, the hundreds of millions of dollars he's invested, actually bears fruit. Because you can't be the front runner if you have zero delegates and very few votes. I guess a few people wrote his name in in New Hampshire. But you know, right now Bernie Sanders has the argument. He ha- you know he does well with Latino voters here. He has a, a base of black support, which is going to be needed to win in the in the for- in the next states. That's something that someone like a Pete Buttigieg cannot argue. Something like Amy Klobuchar cannot argue. Joe Biden has certainly faltered, so I don't think you can consider him the front runner at this point. I think that the obvious choice is Bernie Sanders, but it's you know temporary. The yeah. front, front runners change. Yeah, I, you know, obviously Joe Biden was the front runner uh, throughout all of 2019, yeah. but he was always in a downward trajectory in his poll numbers. That's different than Michael Bloomberg. So that when he finally met the voters in Iowa, yeah. New Hampshire, uh, they met him on that downward trajectory. Uh, as you know, we'll see what Michael Bloomberg puts together on Super Tuesday, but he's going to meet voters while he's on an upward trajectory, which is a different uh, calculus. Uh, but th- it is still very real. Uh, that Buttigieg and Klobuchar have, out of their success and different levels of success, Buttigieg quite successful in Iowa, New Hampshire. Klobuchar, you know, turning a a fifth place and third place showing in or comeback, comeback, comeback yeah, kid moment. Yeah, exactly into into momentum. But they both have a lot to prove about facing uh, an electorate that is not predominantly white. That is a test for both of them in these next two contests. Yeah, and it's something they their campaigns readily acknowledge. I mean, Pete Buttigieg has been working for months to try and address this to, to, to some success, little success. I mean, a Monmouth poll out today showed he had 10% of support among black voters And I think he said 6% among yeah. non-white voters in the national poll. Yeah, so I mean, it's he's seen some growth. The problem for him, and I think it's a problem his campaign is is dealing with, is is it a self-fulfilling prophecy? Have enough voters heard that he doesn't support, he doesn't have the support of black voters for it to become a kind of a baked in narrative. Amy Klobuchar has not had that same experience. I mean, for a long time, she, she has had just the same problems garnering black support. I mean, this Monmouth poll of Virginia had her at zero percent, but it's not as part of, it's not as big a part of the conversation. And, and um, that's a problem for Pete Buttigieg. And until he can prove and address that, uh, in states like Nevada, South Carolina, Virginia, a number of the Super Tuesday states that have diverse 
electorates. Uh, I think he's got a real issue. Before I let you go, I need to pick on your home state here for a second. I know you are a proud Nevadan. Very proud. Yes. Do you want me to sing the song? Go for it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'll pass. Um, uh, but there are real concerns about whether the Nevada Democratic Party is going to be able to pull off these caucuses. We've heard reports over the weekend, uh, you know, throughout this four day early voting period that uh, some people have filled out their early vote ballots incorrectly. Uh, they, they have to pick three choices. Uh and if they have not picked three choices, their ballot is invalid. And then uh, they may not even learn that their ballot's invalid unless a campaign is notified and reaches out to them to try to drive them to the actual caucuses on Saturday. We have no idea how widespread this is or if it's totally just limited and anecdotal. I, that add in that they got rid of the app that was used in Iowa and now they're trying to train people on what to do with these Google spreadsheets and and this caucus calculator on a tablet that a lot of volunteers have said they haven't actually played with themselves. This seems like a recipe for a not well-oiled caucus day on Saturday, but uh, I, do you hear differently? Are campaigns worried? How are they planning for this? I'm going to briefly come to the defense of my state, but I will I will say, yes, a lot of campaigns are concerned. There are There are concerns over the number of variables that are as a part of the process. They've gotten rid of the app, the, calc- the caucus calculator. Um, but I do think the emerging big issue is these these void ballots that where people did not select three candidates. And I have stood outside of early voting sites over the last three days and talked to probably two dozen, maybe more voters. And at least two have told me they did not finish, did not pick three candidates because they didn't think they had to. You know, somebody who was very motivated to vote for Joe Biden just put Biden as his number one candidate. Um, so, you know, that's a that's an issue that I think all the candidates are going to have to confront of how they get in touch with these folks. Um, you know, I think the shadow of Iowa is hanging over Nevada and the idea that you could have another caucus where there are issues in counting votes. There are questions even days after. I mean, we still are the recanvas in Iowa is still going on today. We, you know. They've let out the national delegate numbers, but they haven't been certified. The party hasn't is still recanvassing a certain number of precincts. So it, that happening again in Nevada, I think, is very damaging for the Democratic Party. I think it's very damaging for the future of caucuses. I think a lot of Democrats are coming to terms with that. Um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna have a little faith in my my home state as we leave this podcast. I, I agree with you that caucuses are going to be a thing of the past, and I also think it's not just Nevada. The DNC and Tom Perez is actually in charge of this nominating yeah. process, and they are going to have to answer if yet another state is unable to pull off a flawless nominating contest, whether or not they're able to oversee a process uh, that is deemed valid and judged uh, fair and competent by the voters. And you have a lot of people who are saying that the decisions the DNC made over the, the last few years to open up these caucus processes, to include early voting, to do those sort of things have contributed to the issues and they're adding more variables to this process. So the DNC does have some culpability in all of this. No doubt about it. Damn America, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Really appreciate your insights and thanks for having us here in your lovely home state of Nevada. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> As always, we're grateful to our listeners. Please subscribe to The Daily DC on your favorite podcast app. While you're there, consider leaving a rating or a comment. It helps people find the show. And if you want to tweet about the podcast, please do so using the hashtag The Daily DC. We'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.